0: Matthew 22. Uh, I forgot to mention during announcements, a few people have brought this up, and I forgot to mention it. Next Sunday after church, if you feel led and you would like to, uh, there's going to be a group of people meeting up here after church, up here towards the, sanctuary, uh, towards the stage, excuse me, and going to be just praying over the upcoming election. Pastor Rich is going to be leading that up, and so it's going to be next Sunday. Next Sunday. All righty. Matthew chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be finishing up here, Lord willing, time willing, Matthew chapter 22. Real quick recap to get us to where we're at. We're in the last week of Christ's life. Matthew 21 on. Matthew 21 is the triumphant entry. We call it Palm Sunday. So we're in the final seven days of Jesus' life. And what you see happening in Matthew 21 is Christ fulfilling prophecies left and right. So therefore, it is clear that He is the Messiah. Only He could fulfill those prophecies. And now Israel is accountable. What are you going to do with this information? Israel is going to reject, and so therefore in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, Jesus does a series of parables basically saying, Israel, you are rejecting me as your Messiah. Now here in the end of Matthew chapter 22, in his final week of life, he is going to be quizzed repeatedly by all these different groups. And Alan's going to put a slide up here real quick that just kind of talks about the different groups and we'll go through them. There are all these different groups are going to come up and ask Jesus questions. First group that's going to come up are the Pharisees. These are the common people of the Old Testament. They focused on the Old Testament law, what we would call Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they focused on what they called the oral law, things that were added to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Common people focused on the law, very legalistic. The next group are the Sadducees. They're the ones that had power in the temple, they're the ones that ran the temple, the high priest, etc. And they were the elites. They did not believe in the afterlife, they did not believe in anything supernatural. Third group are the Herodians. This is a political party. They sided with Herod, who was the so-called far so called king of the Jews at this time. And the last group are the scribes. These are lawyers whose expertise was in the law, and their job was to copy scriptures. We'll leave this up here, because Christ is going to talk to all these different groups this morning. Now, as I was going through this lesson, I was preparing it, I, I read through Matthew 21, and I'm thinking, Lord, there's something I'm not seeing here. I'm just not getting this. And so I started reading some other stuff and give credit where credit's due. A man by the name of John Corson, I was reading one of his messages, and he made a comment that in Matthew 22, what you see is Exodus 12. Now, what Exodus 12 is, the Passover lamb. You know Jesus is the Passover lamb. Passover is what we celebrate here. Resurrection Sunday is when Jesus the lamb was sacrificed for our sins. Well, before the lamb could be sacrificed in Exodus 12 at Passover, he spent five days being analyzed. Looking for spots, blemishes, problems. And what John Corson said is Matthew 22 is Jesus' time of testing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes are all going to come up and pepper him with questions. And Jesus is going to pass every test. He is the lamb that has been inspected. He is the lamb that has been proven. And he is our sacrifice for sins. So with that being said, let's get to our first question. Matthew 22 verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, first off, you see teaming up Pharisees and the Herodians. They know that they need to stop Jesus. Jesus is a threat to their way of life. He is a threat to what they believe is their religious institution and kingdom and power. So they team up here. And what a set-up question this is. What should we do about paying taxes? If Jesus says, pay your taxes, well, guess what? The Jewish common people are going to be very upset because they hated the idea of paying taxes to Rome. If Jesus says, do not pay your taxes, well, guess what? The Herodians are going to go right back here to Herod and King in Rome and say, listen, we got this guy. He's not saying to pay your taxes. From our perspective, it's a no win situation, it's a complete setup. Christ's response, verse 18 Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And they said to him, Whose inscription, excuse me, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. What a great answer. Basically, Jesus says, Show me a coin. Okay, who's on the coin? Caesar? Well, I guess that's Caesar's coin. You better give it back to him then. That's the point. That's Caesar's money. So why don't you give Caesar back his money, his image? He made it. Give it to him. But now look at the other point that he brings up here. And give to God the things that are God's. Whose image are you? You're God's. We know from Genesis that you're created in the image of God. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, Caesar wants his money. It's got his image on it. Let him have it. Because God doesn't want it. God wants you because you have his image on you. What a point that is to stop and think about. How often as believers do we get so worked up here about the finances and the money when really Jesus is saying, whose image is on it? I'll just give it to them then. What a great teaching for us to stop and think about because when we start thinking about money and finances, oh my goodness, we can get so caught up in the things of this world. Can you go with me real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy 6. Paul's got a couple great points here about money in 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's start in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. How simple is that? Godliness with contentment is a great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. One of the things we do with the boys is this. If we're in a store and they see something they want, okay, what is it you want, they tell us. Okay, I ask them some couple quick questions. Do you have food in your belly? Yeah. Do you have clothes on your back? Yeah. Do you have a roof over your head? Yeah. Then I think you're okay. You know, contentment. But this world always throws one more thing at you. It just wants one more thing. We we're just talking recently to one of the kids and he wanted something and so the classic response was well you know what why don't you put that on your christmas list right it's only a couple months away put that on your christmas i can remember growing up as a kid once we got to the fall season anytime i go up to my mom and say hey mom there's something i want she starts saying just put it on your christmas list i'm gonna start doing that like in february hey you want something hey christmas is only 10 months away why don't you put that on your christmas list godliness with contentment Because what happens, verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, please note it's the love of money, not money in itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You will never be satisfied. That's what you're looking for. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, The Man Who Had Everything. You will never be satisfied. And the world just dangles things in front of us. They dangle overtime. They dangle that's higher pay. Yeah, you have to do a few more hours, but here's more pay. There's this, there's that. There's always something that we want more of. You can always make payments on something. You can always do this or that. It just gets you sucked into it. A lot of the counseling we do out here at church is financial counseling. And when you talk to some of these people that are just in so much debt, you see the burden that it is, enslaved to it. It's an awful feeling. So what Paul's trying to tell Timothy here is, listen, make sure you tell them, stay away from that. You'll never be satisfied with that, never. Be content with what God has given us. Caesar wants his money, give Caesar its money. They got his image on it. It's not your Lord's, because God will always meet your needs and take care of you. But what about if you've been blessed, though? Well, stay in the same chapter. Let's look at the balance verse to this. Look at verse 17 of Timothy six. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. You've been blessed with a job, or you've been blessed with finances, where money is not an issue for you. Amen. What are you supposed to do with it? Verse 18, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. The Lord has blessed you, bless others. That's the amen to it. Because if we go back to this idea of verse 9 of desiring to be rich, falling in temptation and a snare, like I said, you'll never win. There will always be somebody who makes more than you, that works less than you. And if they give you that raise, oh, it's not going to help all as much as you think it is. Because what happens is it's just the world system. Jesus is saying here, don't get caught up in it. Caesar wants his money, give it to Caesar. Because really what God wants is you, made in the image of God. Now, before we move on, though, there's one other point we have to make about this question. Did you catch verse 16, back in Matthew 22? And they sent to him their disciples with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Boy, is that not buttering him up? Be careful of that. Be careful of the people that are buttering you up. I can't remember if it's Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, but it says, Woe to you when people are constantly flattering you with words. What's going on? I remember at a little pastor's huddle we had years ago, pastor made this comment that anytime someone comes to his church, first time they've ever been there, and they just can't get over how great the church is. Just amazing. The worship is amazing. Just the teaching is amazing. This church is amazing. It's the most amazing church I've ever been to. Pastor mentally says, yeah, you'll probably never be back. Because we're so used to that idea of being buttered up. Have you ever experienced that where you know somebody just wants something? I remember it was about a month after I I took over here. so about 17 years ago or so. Some guy came in, had a kid with him. And so the guy comes in, things are very difficult, it's very tough. He shows me his son, what they're going through and how difficult it is. And it's just, just your heart is moved. So I remember, his worship was going on, Dawn's in the back row. I go to Dawn, it's like, Dawn, what, what do you got with you? How much money do you got? We need to help this family out. So we help them, bless them, amen, thank you, they said. just like, wow, Lord, it feels so good to do good. Next week, a gal shows up with a kid i never met the gal before, but boy, that kid looks really familiar. They came back the next Sunday, just traded spouses. So, one month in, I started learning. Got to be careful. And a while, a few years ago, there was a guy that showed up and just, man, this church is great. This church is great. This is the church I've been looking for. I've been to a lot of different churches. This is the church I'm looking for. And in fact, the old church I used to go to, it's just not a good church. I mean, they just weren't a loving church. They weren't a helpful church. They didn't teach and preach like you did. And he's just like, okay, this, is, this sounds really good. Amen. So he just goes on and on about how great this church is and how awful his other church was. And you're just kind of listening in, and you just can kind of feel the head start to, you know, expand a little bit, and the ego get puffed up. Then he just drops this little comment. and worked it right in. He goes, you know, my old church, you know, I'd go up and ask them for some money and help, and they just wouldn't do it. It's like, oh. Now I see everything you're saying and everything you're doing. Just buttering up to come get what you want. So aren't you thankful that we serve a God that can look through everything? And so when they try to butter them up in verse 16, his response, verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Use that this week. When somebody butters you up, just look at them and say, I perceive your wickedness. Why do you test me, you hypocrite? That is biblical. <laughs> That is biblical. And I want you to report back next week and let me know how that goes. And you'll be looking for a new job, too. But just remember that, the buttering up, how great Jesus handled. So he just dealt with the Pharisees and the Herodians. You know what? Caesar wants his money. Give it to Caesar. You're God's image. That's what we need to focus on. Okay, what about the next question? Verse 23 of chapter 22. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. I've heard this so many times. I just absolutely love it. The Sadducees, they don't believe in the afterlife, so therefore they're Sadducees. That's how you remember that. So they do not believe in the resurrection. Verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there was what, seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring led his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. You have to know a little bit of Old Testament law here. So let's say that you had many brothers and you weren't the oldest. So what would happen is your older brother gets married and before he can have offspring, he dies. According to the law, you were supposed to take his wife now as your wife to carry all the lineage of your family. So the Sadducees are doing this hypothetical question. So the guy gets married, and he dies, and the next thing you know, all seven brothers died. So this woman's now been married seven times with no kids. Basically, the Sadducees are saying, if you believe in the afterlife, how are you going to handle this ridiculous idea? She's going to have seven husbands for all of eternity? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 29 is powerful. You will run into a lot of people who claim to know God. Remember, the Sadducees were not atheists. They believed in God. But look at the response in verse 29. You are mistaken. You are deceived. You are in error. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures. Most of the people that you are going to run into don't know the scriptures. They don't. And so therefore, they don't understand truth and doctrine. It has to line up with God's word. Remember, God's word is truth. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 that God's word is the foundation. It's our doctrine. That's what we use for reproof, correction, and admonishment. We live in a world now where nobody knows what right and wrong is. Remember what it says in Isaiah. Woe to him who calls right wrong and him who calls wrong right. This is a messed up world. As believers, we have the foundation of truth, so therefore we know what is right. Even though we may be on the minority of certain moral issues, we know what is right. That's the doctrine we stick with because we know that. And Jesus is saying, listen, Sadducees, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Real quick, that does not mean you become an angel. It means that you are like the angels in heaven, not married. Now, for some people, that really bothers them. They love their spouse. This idea of eternity without my spouse. Now, just a couple points, and some of them sound a little harsh, and please don't take it that way. You may love your spouse, but your spouse did not die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did. So he's the primary goal and purpose of heaven, to him be the glory. Now, that with that being said, I love serving and ministering with my wife. But we have to remember this. Before we are husband and wife, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Dawn and I have been married 20 years. We've known each other longer than that because we've been brothers and sisters in Christ longer than we've been married. What happens when you die and you go to heaven, it's not that you're not focusing on the marital relationship. You're focusing on your primary relationship, which is brother and sister in Christ. Because that's why you're in heaven. You're in heaven because of what Jesus did for both of you as individuals. You've accepted Christ as your Savior. So therefore, in heaven, your focus is the brother and sister Christ relationship that predates, is more important than your marriage. So therefore, when you're up in heaven, I hope you get to hang out with your spouse. I can remember years ago hearing uh, Jim teach on this, and Jim making the comment that him and Bonnie have agreed to hang out with each other for all of eternity. Amen. I've asked that of dawn. She's thinking about it. But the point is, there's a possibility there. So when you get to heaven, it's not about marriage. It's about your brother and sister in Christ's relationship. That's the focus that Jesus is trying to say in the resurrection. But he goes one other step further, verse 31. Concerning the resurrection of the dead. Hey, Sadducees, you don't even believe in the afterlife? I've addressed your question. Let me address this other issue. Have you not read what was spoken to by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished as teaching, I am, present tense, I am still Abraham's God, I am still Isaac's God, I am still Jacob's God. And when this passage was written in verse 32, some of those people had already been dead for years. Not, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, I am. I am their God. So therefore, the scriptures show you life continues after death. You are immortal. You will live on forever, either in heaven or in hell. That is the reality of what it is. You either have eternal life or you have eternal death. Eternal death, hell. Never created for you. That was not its purpose. Let the Bible make that point clear. It was created for the fallen angels and Satan to be their punishment. So Jesus made it very clear, through him, we can have eternal life. His blood is the only currency accepted in heaven. We have a debt we cannot pay. He is the Passover lamb that took care of our sins, did the sacrifice, so therefore we can have life in the resurrection. And that is what Jesus is trying to tell them there. So now he's dealt with the Pharisees. He's dealt with the Herodians. He's dealt with the Sadducees. Now, but before we move on, what did we learn with the Pharisees? We learned about the buttering up questions. Okay, what did we learn with the Sadducees here? In verses 24 through 28, what I call this question is the hypothetical rabbit trail question. Hey, I want to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you about the Lord. Yeah, I got a couple questions I want to ask you about the Lord. So you think you're going to have this deep spiritual conversation and you're going to lead them to Christ. The next thing you know, they're talking about reincarnation. I remember one time talking to some guys in McClure and we were just really trying to witness and the Lord's opening doors and there was this one guy that just, you'd get close to what it really means to be saved and he just, oh, rabbit trail. What about reincarnation? Well, What about reincarnation? So we talked about reincarnation. Okay, now we're back to the gospel and Jesus. Okay, what about aliens on Mars? What about aliens on Mars? What about them? If there's aliens on Mars, Jesus died for them too. So anyway, so (laughs) moving on back to Christ. Rabbit trails, hypothetical, and sometimes you can have these conversations with people and you and you spend all this time and energy and you realize we didn't get anywhere. We went here, then here, then here, then here. That's what I love about Jesus. He says, Hey, resurrection. Let me quote you some scripture, Sadducees. Let me get you right back to the point. Always get into the scriptures. It will not return void. That is God's word. We just were studying this on Wednesday nights. It's alive. It's active. It cuts right to where it needs to be. Use scriptures. Your thoughts and opinions may be intelligent. They may be good. But nothing trumps scripture. That's what you need to use there when it comes to these conversations. Verse 34. We've done Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees. Now we're going to do scribes, lawyers. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer... Scribe asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, according to the scribes' estimates, there were 613 rules in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 613. So, Jesus, which one's the most important? It's kind of a setup question, right? Which one are you going to choose? No matter what answer, I firmly believe, no matter what answer he would have given them if he picked a specific one, they would have said, oh, so you think that's the most important. What, you don't mean you don't think this is the most important one? Have you ever had those conversations with people? You realize there is not an answer I can give you in any way whatsoever. That's going to be the right answer. So therefore, Jesus just sums it up Perfectly. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. One of the saddest funerals I've ever did was many years ago. Um, It was a guy I never met. It was just one of those where they didn't have a pastor to do the funeral. And as much as possible, I tried to do those to represent the Lord to a hurting family. Went over to the family's house. Never met the guy. Didn't really know anything. And we just started talking about things. And so you talk about their life. What did they like to do? What did they enjoy to do? When I do a funeral, I try to do three things. You know, we try to comfort the family. We try to honor the memory of the person that passed. And we try to point people towards Jesus Christ. So I'm collecting memories, so we can honor this person's memory, and we're trying to comfort the family, the peace and comfort that God gives. And you steer the conversation, hopefully through the Spirit, back to spiritual matters. You know, did, did he go to church? Where did he go to church? Was he, you know, you try to okay, was he saved? Whatever. So we're building the conversation to okay, was this man a Christian? So I, not getting anywhere. So I finally just asked, you know, was this, was this man a believer? Was he a Christian? Was he saved? And it was kind of that silent cricket chirping, and I remember the response. Well. He believed if you just followed the Ten Commandments, you'd probably do okay. Now, the reason I bring this up is if you note of the 613 rules and laws that Jesus could have picked, did you note the two that he picked in verse 7 and 39? They're not one of the Ten Commandments. We 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 level these Ten Commandments up, and I agree, they're important, they're great. But the Ten Commandments aren't going to save you. You can follow all the Ten Commandments, you're not gonna be saved. You're a sinner. And so, what Jesus is saying right here, you wouldn't know what the most important rules are? Most important rule, verse 37, is love me. Love me first with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is not just this casual relationship, not this surface relationship, but an intimate love that you have for me. And when you have that, it links verse 39 right to the second one loving other people. You can't love other people unless you love the Lord first. You can't. So, it always blows my mind when I run into someone who claims to be saved, and they're just a mean, nasty person, and they don't like anybody. According to 1 John, if you have the love of the Lord, that love of the Lord is going to affect how you respond to everybody else. Everybody else. God has so touched you that it impacts how you live and act with every other person that you run into. Because the Lord has been loving, kind, and forgiving to you, so therefore you carry that on to somebody else. It's a love. Now, just think about this. Carry on this idea of love here for a while. Love is just so emotional when we think of the word love. What did Jesus say in John 13? He says, you will know that you are my disciples by your love. Think about that. When you go into work tonight, tomorrow, school, or any interactions you have over the next couple of days, the primary witnessing tool that Jesus has given you is love people. Love people. This is not, I love you so much that I just want you to be happy no, I love you so much I want you to be saved. And so therefore, I love you so much that I will tell you the reality of heaven and hell because that's love. I will love you so much that I'll come to you and say, I'm concerned about you. Are you doing okay spiritually? I love you enough to sometimes be a pain in the butt. And I hope that you would feel the same towards me. Jesus is saying, love me first with everything you got and then let that love go on to everybody else. That is what, verse 40, hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on that. First group of questions we saw was the buttering up. Second group of questions we saw was the hypothetical rabbit trails that try to distract. What's the third group? The intellectual. I'm so smart. Let's talk about all the different rules. Jesus says, yeah, we could talk about them, but let's just talk about love. That is what matters most. It's not how many Bible verses you have memorized. It's not what you can quote or what have you. It's do you have the love of Jesus in your life that impacts how you react and deal with other people. Jesus now turns the tables on them. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus now saying, What do you think, guys? I've answered your questions. Passed every one of your tests. What do you think? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does... David in the spirit called him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Exodus 12, he's the Passover lamb that has passed inspection. It's time for him to be sacrificed. But look at this great question. Who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David. What they're saying is he's the descendant of David. Okay, got that. But look at verse 44, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till so I make your enemies your footstool. Basically, he's asking them, then how can David call him Lord? Because if the Messiah, the Christ, is just a descendant of David, how is it David calling him Lord, Master? Obviously, the Christ is more than just a descendant of David. Obviously, the Christ is more than just somebody from David's lineage. It is a man, but is yet God. And that's why he is called Lord. So Jesus' is saying sums it up very perfectly. That's who I am. Are you going to accept it? He goes in, and we'll get into this next week in Matthew 23, a long chapter denouncing the Pharisees, the Sadducees, for their fake religion and not having a real relationship, which then takes us to Matthew 24 and 25, end times. But this is what we want to finish it with right here. Got to go with this last point, what Christ said. What do you think about the Christ? What are we going to do with this information we learned here this morning? So we get it. Okay, Matthew 21, Christ fulfilled prophecies left and right. Got it. Okay, Matthew 22, we get it. He answered every question. He passed every t- test. He used scripture. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Okay, you, you believe that. I'm willing to have most of you here this morning believe that. Okay, what is that going to do to your life on a day-in, day-out basis? Because I'm so thankful you came here this morning. It is so good to see you. But now we're going to leave this building And for most of you, I won't see you for another seven days. How are we going to let this impact how you live your life? On how you have conversations with people, your kids, your spouse, your coworkers, teachers, students, what have you. How is this going to make you live a life that says, Christ, you are truly God, you are Messiah. I want to live for you in everything. I want to do exactly what verse 37 just said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What's the next level of living this out? And really doing it. And if you're here this morning. And we talked about the reality of heaven and hell. That's a very serious question. And we're going through Hebrews. Like I said on Wednesday. And we just got taught talking in Hebrews 3 and 4. About how today is the day of salvation. You are going to live on forever. Either through Christ. And accepting and believing what he did. Because he paid a debt you can't pay. Took care of your sins that you can't take care of. In heaven. Or you're going to try to go out on your own. And say, Lord, I can do this. You will stand before the Lord at the end. You will, and you have to give an account of your life. And the question is going to come up: What is your key to get into heaven? And it has to be through Christ. It's great to study this. It's great to get together, have some fun, and I hope you were blessed this morning. But now we need to say, Lord, we need to pray this into our lives and be the people you've called us to be. Let's pray, Lord. As we.